0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from The Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of longform.org. Hello, gentlemen.
1: Welcome back, Evan. Hey, back from San Francisco. Thank you. Uh, what were you doing, in San Francisco?
0: I was uh, working on and then uh, putting up, I guess you would say, pop up magazine, which is the world's first and only live magazine.
1: I've never seen pop up magazine, but I would like to see. it. Does it ever come to New York, or is it only, only we came in San to New York? Cisco?
0: We came to New York once, uh, sponsored by ESPN magazine.
1: And we have mostly it's in San Francisco. Also it sells out in 30 minutes or less, 3000 seats. That you could hook me up, right? It, mm. is, isn't that evidence that maybe like, uh, you guys should do more of it or ever let anyone see it. I don't think so. It's for <laughs> a small group of people who really love it. Uh, Max, uh, who did you talk to this week? I talked to Pam Koloff from, uh, Texas monthly. One of my, uh, all time favorite magazines, Pam, if you have not read her stuff, uh, has written about all sorts of things in her time at Texas Monthly, but the last few years has been writing quite a bit around wrongfully imprisoned people in Texas. Which is a great place to write about wrong. Yeah, really it's uh, ground zero for wrongful convictions. Um, She just put out over the last two months uh, a two-part, I think it's going to come in like, totally, like, 30,000 words, something like that, uh, about this guy named Michael Morton, who's probably the most well-publicized of all of these wrongful conviction cases. Uh, Maybe we should just get into it. Let's do it. But before we get into it, we got to talk about our sponsor, Tiny Letter. It's the the most simple yet powerful way uh, to do an email newsletter. It's from the good people at MailChimp. We thank them for their patronage. And, uh, it continues to, uh, be the gift that keeps on giving to us. Thank you. <laughs> Tiny letter, Pam Koloff. Pam Koloff. Thank you very much for, um, coming on to the long form podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: How is your Monday?
0: My Monday is good. We're uh, closing the second part of the twenty-eight thousand word story, so it's a little hectic here at the office, but it's
1: good. Yeah how um, how long does it take to close a twenty-eight thousand word story? I mean, <laughs> like, uh, well,
0: luckily we published half of it already.
1: Well, let's let's dial this back here for a second. So, um, tell us about this story that it, the second part of which just came out this week.
0: Sure. So uh, this is the story of Michael Morton, who is is a man in Texas who was uh, convicted of murdering his wife. He was convicted in 1987. Uh, He was exonerated last fall after DNA testing showed that he was innocent, which he had been saying all along. And um, it's just a, a, a really fascinating case because he not only spent 25 years in prison, Uh, as an innocent man, but he was a crime victim. He lost his wife, and his son was taken away from him. And he only recently, or shortly before his exoneration, learned that his son, who was three years old at the time, had witnessed the murder um, and actually had information that would have helped to exonerate him. Um, But that evidence was Kept from him, um, so it's a really interesting story. It's been widely covered in the local papers here and in national media. 60 Minutes, and NPR um, have both done their take on it.
1: Yeah, well, that was something I wanted to ask you about. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it, unlike some of the other stories that you've done, which hopefully we can we can get into, the, mm-hmm. this one is 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 one that I think people were familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, they mm-hmm. knew the narrative, and, and unlike some of the other ones, they 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 knew how it ends, or they. Right, they thought they knew how to um, Why w- tackle a story that people feel like they have have already heard?
0: Sure. Well, a part of that is that when I started working on it, um, it, not as much of that work had been had been done. But um, I think w- what what interested me was, despite all of that coverage, I mean, and and from excellent, you know, news sources from sixty minutes, from NPR, local newspapers here. Um, there still was a lot missing and a lot that I felt needed to be explained, both on a personal level about what Michael had gone through, about what his son had gone through, um, and just the mechanics of what happened. You know, How does someone get convicted of murdering his wife when he didn't do it, and then how does he get out when the entire system is, is opposing him? And I felt like those questions Really, could be best answered in a long-form magazine narrative, uh, and you know, it's it's not a book, so it, it is digestible, hopefully, to you know, your average person. Um, but it goes, I, I hope deeper than than some of the already excellent coverage that's been out there.
1: And I mean, um, h- how were you hoping to go deeper? I mean, one of the things that I think um, your piece really gets at is, uh, the relationship with his son. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, uh, some of the sort of more kind of personal and emotional parts of Mm -hmm. uh, a story that I think a lot of people approach kind of from a, a sort of legal perspective.
0: Right, right. Well, something that interested me, uh, you know, you can, you can read in the paper, see on TV, uh, oh my gosh, this, you know, this man was in prison for 25 years for something he didn't do, that's terrible. Uh, and you know he didn't, he didn't know his son growing up, that's horrible. But what does that really mean? I mean, like, ha- when you really sit and think about those details and you can draw them out in the way that you can in a, in a long form magazine narrative, um, what does that mean? Like I remember the first time I talked to Michael in depth when we did a, a real sit down interview, uh, I, I was fascinated with these court-mandated uh, visits that he had with his son twice a year. He had two hours with his son twice a year. And that's all he had from when his son was 4 to 15. And he, I, I asked him, you know, at each point, you know, when your son was 4, when your son was 5, what were those visits like? What do you remember? What can you describe? And he, there was this image that really stuck with me. He talked about his son with his matchbox cars, driving the matchbox car you know along the little picnic table where they're sitting outside the visitation room and there were just these these amazing details that he would tell me where I thought wow it's like it's both so normal it's a father and a son and this kid's just four he doesn't really understand what's going on and at the same time it's this you know, epic tragedy in this family where this man can only see his son for these glimpses of time. So, yeah, he, I was,
1: I mean, I, I was really struck by that stuff too, reading, reading the stories. Just like, um, how, how do you connect with someone you know uh, you are losing touch with and you are going to lose touch with and who doesn't understand the situation? Like, there were other little things that you, you use in that story, like uh, he gives him lemon drops every time he comes. said, mm-hmm. like, uh, the other one that really got me was the sending the mazes through the mail, yes, yes. which is, you know, like some kind of metaphor. And whatnot, I know. But, you know.
0: I know. It's fascinating. I mean, the, those sort of details, I hope, are what stay with people and really make this a real event. I mean, anyone with a child can can picture themselves sitting there. And I think um, that was part of that for me, too. I have a son who's, who's just turned five, and so I, I was able to sort of picture what that interaction might be like and just um, try to make it as alive on the page as possible. And to me, it's so fascinating anyway, I mean, regardless, forget about a case like this, but just anyway, how a parent and a child will remember the first five years of life differently, you know, um, where the child remembers almost nothing. That's so interesting. And then you, you lay this on top of it and that he didn't remember his mother. He didn't really remember his father. He didn't remember the murder. And his father remembers everything. That's just so fascinating to me. So right. I hope that comes across on the page.
1: Yeah, I mean, not, not only does his father remember everything, he can't stop thinking about it. And then right. uh, it, it sort of revealed later in the story that, that um, the son kind of got through life by banishing it from his mind, you know? Right,
0: exactly, exactly. And they they each had different coping mes- mechanisms. And, um, yeah, his son remembered almost nothing of those, of those visits. The lemon drops, he told me, was one of the only things that stood out in his memory. And, you know, his dad was, for six months, that's what he was looking forward to every year, was seeing him and, you know, savoring those little details after each meeting. So it's, you know... It's so heartbreaking. And I, I hope that, I hope this story brings that alive and sort of what what this family, not just Michael, but what the family's gone through.
1: Walk me through what it's like to go talk to him for the first time. I mean, at, at mm-hmm. this point, um, you know, I assume that you have done um, a whole slew of these kind of jailhouse interviews. And I think mm-hmm. that maybe people listening, you know, it's such like a... Um, uh, it's such like a kind of Hollywood-ish thing, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, what's that like Are you're going to talk to this guy, especially someone like Morton who's been uh, in the news and 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 uh, maybe has done a couple of these before?
0: Well, I mean, he, this was such a, a strange situation because with Michael, he was out when I interviewed him for the first time. So oh, right, right, right. So I, so I met him. No, but it's interesting in, in, in relation to how these stories are usually done. I mean, he... He actually, he comes to Austin, he lives in East Texas, but he comes to Austin a lot, because this used to be his home. And so he actually came to my office and sat in my office for a couple of days. Wow. And so that was so different. I mean, it, what's so um, so difficult about prison interviews is usually you have one shot to talk to somebody who you're writing you know, a very lengthy, detailed story about. And so you have to instantly establish rapport, um, you know, quickly move through this material, uh, finish before the guards, you know, take you away. And of course, the inmate often hasn't, you know, seen anybody from the outside world in quite a while. So it's just, it's such a bizarre situation normally. And with Michael, what was so strange was he was newly out and, you know, he had,
1: how long have he been out for when you talked to him? He
0: he didn't talk to media. Let's see. He got out October 4th of last year. And he had an exclusive with 60 Minutes. I think it aired in early March. And then he started talking to people right after that. I think I met with him in mid-March uh, originally. I mean, I uh, obviously have talked to him many times since. Um, but, you know, he had just he had lost his wallet that morning because he wasn't used to carrying a wallet and he'd gone to eat something and he left his wallet at the restaurant. So he looked like the most normal, like you would never have imagined what this guy had been through. You know, he's, he, he doesn't look like he's been, been in prison. He's got good teeth and everything, you know, right. but he, um, but he had just been through this incredible trauma and that was so, so interesting.
1: I feel like another uh, uh, potential reason that, you feel comfortable taking on this story that, that has been in 16 minutes and all these other places, um, is kind of the culture of the place that you work. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, my, uh, understanding of Texas monthly is that, um, there are, uh, unlike say where I am in New York, there are not a lot of outlets competing for these kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it feels like the magazine has this history of sort of going after Mm -hmm. the, the long version of these stories and really trying to get in as deep, especially on this crime stuff.
0: Well, and, and, and to me, I mean, so often, um, I mean, there are many, many stories I've written about before where plenty of people have, have, have weighed in. And, and I'll give you an example, like, a long, this isn't a crime story, but a long, long time ago, um, our former editor, Evan Smith, uh, sent me to Crawford when George Bush was still president. And he said, I want you to write a cover story on Crawford and what's going on there. And at the time, I swear to you, every <laughs> newspaper in the world had done their little, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 word I don't mean little, that sounded disparaging, but they had done <laughs> they had done the, the newspaper story of what Crawford was all about. And right. so I just thought this is impossible. This is the most ridiculous assignment. And I got up there and there's literally, there's nothing there. Like you drive into town and there's not even a town. There's a gas station and like a bunch of reporters trying to find a local, a colorful local to interview. And so I called Evan and I just said, you know, th- there's just nothing here. And he said, well, spend a day up there and call me the end of the day tomorrow and tell me what you think. And I always find my best reporting moments are driven by desperation and fear. <laughs> so um, it just kind of forced me to go talk to maybe some people I wouldn't have talked to. And to me, there was a whole magazine story that was um, th- that was sort of waiting to be told. I mean, the, the town yes, there were these colorful people with colorful quotes and all the stuff that had already been out there, but there was also a really interesting history to the town, interesting racial dynamics, um, a fascinating story involving the black Democratic mayor of Crawford and just all this stuff that when I ended up camping out there for a month and basically kind of living there, um, <laughs> a lot of things came to the surface. And it's not, you know, any newspaper reporter who'd been given that, and that length would have would have gotten the same stuff it's just the luxury of having having those resources but um, I think there's always a great magazine story waiting to be told and and um, in the in the Morton story for example uh, you know no one wrote about the law enforcement angle like there's been a lot of focus on the the district attorney but the the sheriff who investigated this case is this has a very troubled history and, and arguably was involved in another wrongful conviction. And no one had ever written about that before. And I thought that seemed very important. So um, I, my my hope is, you know, what we do with it being between newspapers and books is that we can go really deep and and use these details to really make make these cases and make these stories come alive.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like that's a real, you know, like... Uh, foundational part of the culture at Texas Monthly. Uh, mm-hmm. How did you um, How did you get started there?
0: I uh, came from the East Coast originally, from New York, and I came to Austin. I didn't know anything about Texas Monthly. I was going to take a year away from the world of New York magazines, my ambition to be a writer and all that, and ended up discovering Texas Monthly here and obviously very quickly had dreams of, of joining the magazine. Um, but I was doing things like waiting tables and working my big bump up in the, in the journalism world in my early twenties was I got to work at a police trade magazine and I, I ghost wrote a column called ask the officer. Um, (laughs) and it was, it was, it was a really interesting experience, but, um, it, it actually, you know, I was copy editing, I was fact checking, I was writing cover stories, I was interviewing people. It you ended were pretending up being to be officers. I was pretending to be a cop. It was, uh, it was, it was great experience in a way. So um, I just started sending query letters over here and got no response for about two years, which was very sad. And um, I ended up getting an assignment from Details about something in Austin and that was sort of, when Texas Monthly, when they saw that story, then I started getting calls back and um, ended up pitching them and was lucky enough to get hired here when I was 25. And I'm convinced that's because several people had left and I was cheap, so. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it, it was, I had to learn very, very fast.
1: And talk about how the stories that you've been interested in doing have evolved i mean uh looking through your archive uh, you know you kind of start one place and 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 uh have moved at least recently into a, like a pretty specific kind mm-hmm. of story that you're telling which is you know mm-hmm. all of these um so sort of wrongful conviction stories started start to kind of weave together but h- how does that how does that evolve i mean h- how do your how do your interests evolve
0: that's a great question. I wish I had a really smart answer for that. Um, I think there's certain kinds of stories that have grabbed my attention over the years. One I would call, you know, subculture stories. There was a, I think it was the first crime story I wrote a long, long time ago was about um, this punk kid in Amarillo who was killed by uh, a, f- a football player at the local high school there. And to me, it was really fascinating to go spend time with basically the punk subculture in Amarillo, which was pretty big at that time and pretty developed. Um, so subculture stories, and another one was, I wrote a story about <laughs> about a makeup counter in Dallas, um, a makeup department in Dallas, I should say, that sells, I think it used to sell more makeup than anywhere in the world or anywhere in America. was at this one particular Neiman Marcus. Um, And that was a whole world in and of itself that was
1: so interesting. Um, You're also kind of like uh, introducing yourself to Texas, right? (laughs) Right, right. A rodeo
0: queen competition was a story I wrote, a a beauty pageant story. Um, Definitely sort of the rights of womanhood in Texas is something that interests me. And then more more recently, I've been interested in writing about wrongful convictions and have written about several of them at this point. And though I could keep doing that for about 10 years because there's so many, I'm sorry to say, screwed up cases here, um, I do feel like it's sort of time to take a new direction and figure out what comes next. I'm not writing the same story over and over again.
1: Uh, Let's talk about that for a second. I mean, I I assume that at this point you are getting... Calls and letters and yes. emails and pleas all the time.
0: Yes, I'm looking. I'm looking at my stack. I call it the stack. Uh, I have <laughs> right now. It's about a foot high. Um, <laughs> my, uh, Michael Hall, who's another staff writer here, and I have both written these stories, and we get I don't know, maybe once a day. We get a lot of mail from from inmates um, asking us to look at their cases. And uh, it's really difficult because there isn't enough time to go through everything and to really know whether someone's telling you the truth. There isn't enough time to respond in a thoughtful way to every piece of mail that comes in or the family member's call or email. Um, so it's, it's difficult. And, and I have to say that uh, I'd say until recently that I, I don't feel like these cases – affected me enough personally to really make me not want to do them, but I do feel like I need a little break (laughs) for a while because they're so dark and they're so sad. And sometimes nothing happens. I wrote about a woman earlier this year um, who was convicted of uh, killing a foster child. There are a lot of questions about her case. And, um, you know, there was a lot of attention that her case got after the story came out. And we're we're still waiting to see what the Court of Criminal Appeals does, but nothing fundamentally
1: changed. And that, but that hasn't always been the case with the work. I mean, in mm-hmm. the tell, tell, tell the people about about the grave story.
0: Uh, that oh gosh, how do I sum that up? Um, <laughs> I, I it was after. Well, let me back up. I read David Graham's story, Trial by Fire, about the Cameron Todd Willingham case, which was arguably a wrongful conviction here in Texas of someone who was executed in 2004. I had actually started working on that story, uh, peeled off of it for a while to work on something else that needed to be handed in first, returned to it called Willingham's mother and she told me that this very nice man from New York named David Grant had just spent a week <laughs> at her house and I I ran into my editor's office and was nearly suicidal and had to abandon the project so there are few there are few things I feel like that are scarier than hearing David Grant was just at my house for a few days from a source but um uh, but anyway that story was so uh, it's just such an amazing piece of journalism and I periodically reread it and it, um, I, it, it made me wanna go find another case like that and write about that and so I, I looked into the case of a man named Anthony Graves who at that time had been in jail for a prison and jail. He was in jail at the time I started looking into it for 18 years for murdering six people in Somerville, Texas in 1992. And it was a really screwed up case. And um, I spent a long time looking into it and writing about it. And uh, when I was done, wrote a very long piece about it. And, um, and a lot of things happened very shortly after that story was, was published. And it sort of, I, I guess, helped get the two sides of the case talking to each other is probably the best way of putting it. But um, Anthony was, was, all charges were dropped and he was released by the special prosecutor in the case uh, about a month and a half after the story came out. And so that was, you know, wonderful. <laughs> I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd gotten to know him and his family very well by then. And uh, that that was really an exciting, I mean, hugely exciting I, thing.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. And, and uh, were you proud to have played that role? I was proud that I brought to light the
0: incredible work that his attorney did, who I think, and I think this is where journalists can be really useful in cases like this, is his attorney, uh, Nicole Casares, who is just this, you know, if anything bad ever happens to you, just hope that Nicole will help you because she is the (laughs) the most determined, hardworking attorney I've ever met for no pay. Um, but she she had worked on this case for so long and and they had done everything they could legally at that point to help Anthony. And I, I honestly think, you know, it just, you know, what what was the story? Like like set aside the, the legal, jargon, but like what, what had happened? What happened in the case? What had Anthony done or not done? Just saying that in simple language to average readers, I I think, and I hope was a powerful thing. I would never have been able to do it if not for Nicole's work. She's the one who figured everything out. Um, but just telling the story, I, I think hopefully had a power in and of itself. And I think that is, you know, a way that we can hopefully be useful in what we do.
1: How do you kind of toe the line between advocacy and journalism right and i feel like there's also this element i mean as you're getting all of these these kind of tragic stories or potentially tragic stories thrown at you like uh you also have to to pick the compelling story right yes
0: you do i I think as far as advocacy journalism i think that's something that we all have to be really careful about and um at the same time, you know, if I, if like in Anthony's case, I read every document, I talked to everybody who had talked to me in the case, and it was readily apparent that he not only hadn't committed the crime, but hadn't been anywhere near the crime scene and hadn't known about what had happened. So, uh, my my duty then is to to say that, you know what I mean. So, um, I think while sort of watching, watching that and being aware of the dangers of advocacy journalism. You do also have to just simply tell what's in your reporting. But um, what you said about also finding a story, I mean, there are many, many people who write and they have tragic um, stories, but they're not necessarily compelling magazine articles. And so figuring out what is a compelling magazine article um, and, and what isn't, I think, is one of the more painful things about this, where, you know, you can't, you can't look into every case, um, but it, but your your job is to be a storyteller. So,
1: right? Have you ever gone down the line with a case and then uh, sort of? I mean, aside from <laughs> aside from getting the David Grand bomb and right. dropping the <laughs> Willingham story, have you have you ever gone down the line with a story and then kind of pulled back uh, because maybe the story wasn't there? Uh,
0: I have done that in ca- not wrongful conviction cases. I mean, I've done that where I've gone down the path of a story for a long time and then decided not to pursue it for different reasons. But I haven't had that happen with the wrongful conviction case. Um, I talked to someone recently who did, and it sort of changed her whole career and outlook on journalism
1: and was very yeah, I devastating. Mean, I, I, I feel like it'd be very difficult to do that.
0: I mean, at the same time, like there are many, many stories where I've gone to interview someone who either was in prison or who was accused of something. And you know, I'm a glass half full kind of person and I want to believe their account of things. And maybe while sitting across from them, I I do. And it's not till later that I really look at the documents and the available facts and think, uh, that's, that's not possible. What that person told me in that very convincing and persuasive way. And that's sort of depressing.
1: You, you've written about some, some pretty, um, grisly topics and, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, really rough, rough crime stories, which I feel like, um, is, you know, sort of stereotypically the province of, of big kind of like brooding male journalists. <laughs> um, and I mean, I'm just interested. I mean, I feel like this is, uh, I feel sort of like dubious asking this question because I feel like no, you ask it of, of every, a- of every, uh, woman who comes on this show, but I am interested in, uh, you know, this, your experience writing these kinds of stories as, as a woman and, and, and Mm -hmm. how, if that has been uh, different at all or challenging or. No, it's a really good question.
0: Um, I I think that uh, traditionally, maybe especially here. I mean, a lot of times I'm going to interview people in places where like it's uncommon for a woman to travel by herself for a week or, you know, the kinds of things that uh, don't usually register for me as being a big deal. Um often I feel like that plays to my advantage, <laughs> whether that's good or bad. Uh, people, uh, and again, this they're, they're good and bad things to this, but I think people sometimes forget, and this isn't just me, this happens to men and women, but forget that I'm a reporter and I'm there reporting. Um, and I, I've especially run into this when when writing about teenagers. I sometimes have to remind, People that I'm, I'm not their friend. We may be friendly, and we may be friends after the story comes out. But that I'm, I'm doing a job, and that I'm trying to get information from them, and that they should be aware that, unless they tell me otherwise, that things that they tell me may be things that I want to write about.
1: How many times do you feel like you have to say that?
0: I, I probably say it once or twice. I, there, I feel like with every story, there are wonderful, wonderful details that I often don't include because. Um I know the way they might affect someone's life when they're published or and I'm, I'm I don't mean in every case if I have a great important detail in a story, I'm going to try to put it in. but there's sometimes some personal things that people tell me that really it might it might be a great detail, but it's not necessary and the fallout from it, you know, by the t- by the time I sit down to write a story, I, I know people pretty well and have, enmeshed myself in their lives and I I feel I feel a responsibility to that sometimes so um, is that
1: something you like uh you learned instinctually you had like you knew instinctually or or, or did you like uh learn it the hard way
0: that's a good question um I think yeah I think early on sometimes seeing the reactions of people like there was a story I wrote a a long time ago was about a a teenage beauty pageant and you know I wrote fairly honestly about one of the contestants who is 16 and it was um, it was a crushing experience for her and and I went back and read the story later and thought well you know was there a way to do that in a more diplomatic way uh, while still conveying the information to the reader and I I don't know I, I, I wrestle with that I'm not sure I have the answer to that but I think the general rule of thumb is for me, you know, when a story's done, like, can I, can I sleep well that night, that night, you know? Right. Um, I'm always a little nervous about what people will think once I've written about them,
1: but. Along those same lines, I mean, would you have, is, is there advice you would have for, uh, sort of younger women who want to write those kinds of stories and how to approach that kind of reporting? That's
0: a great question. Um, I mean, I, 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 I feel weird saying this, but I feel like you you almost have an advantage as a, a woman reporter just because um, I think people are more open with you. And that's a vast, vast generalization. Um, Skip Hollinsworth, who's a, a staff writer here, who's a guy, uh, can get anyone to tell him anything in five minutes. Like I've never I don't I still don't even understand what he does, but he can get your deepest darkest secret out of you and convince you that it should be published uh, quickly <laughs> but I think by and large I think um, I think women are an advantage as far as people think of us as listeners or you know I'm gonna I'm gonna devolve into embarrassing stereotypes here but um, I, I, I see it really as an asset more than than anything and when I was younger one of the things that was great about being in my 20s and working for the magazine was no one took me seriously, which was wonderful. So, like, they just, there was a story I did a million years ago about this um, cattle baron who was suing Oprah Winfrey for talking about mad cow disease on her talk show. And I went and I spent a day with him going around, just driving around his ranch, and... At the end of the day, he's, I'd given him my business card. I mean, I'd done everything I was supposed to do, and at the end of the day, he said something like, so is this an internship? You know, what, what is this that you're doing? And um, he'd said all these amazing this things. Is the high
1: school newspaper? Right, I
0: mean, yeah. And um, so whether you're young or female or unass- an unassuming guy, I don't think it really matters. I just think that, you know, as long as you can get people to talk, you can you can get a great story. I'm not. I'm, I'm worried. I didn't really answer your question, but I hope I did.
1: No, that's okay. You answered part of it. <laughs> you don't have to answer the other half. The <laughs> other half is like comment on the byline gap. You don't have to do that if you don't want to.
0: <laughs> no, I hope I, I I hope that answers the question. I just. To me, you go after the stories you're interested in and that you can't stop thinking about and that you're talking to your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife over and over and over again about. And it doesn't really matter anything. It's just your curiosity that matters, and that kind of carries you.
1: So where do you think that's going to carry you next? I mean, if you're you're feeling a little understandably burnt out on (laughs) wrongful convictions. Well, uh, it's
0: funny because the two next stories I have to do, one will be for the web and one will be for print, are follow-ups to the Morton story. In December, the prosecutor um, is going to undergo this thing called a court of inquiry where he'll basically be put on trial. And I'll be covering that for our website. And then in January, I'm writing about the man whose DNA was identified with this crime. Um, and that's so interesting to me because I'm familiar with the evidence in the case and it'll be interesting to see you know, someone else who's now the defendant with the former de- defendant sitting there watching the proceedings and some of the evidence that was withheld being presented in open court.
1: I'm so happy to hear that you're writing that story because yes. I, I read the second half today and I was like, well, what happened to that guy? Which what? is also, but that, that also reminds me of a question mm-hmm. that I sure. have to ask, which I have not asked, which is you guys serialized this thing mm-hmm. and I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in how that worked. I mean, apparently you guys are, are just closing the story now. So apparently uh, it wasn't like it was all done and then you decided to break it up into two. No. Yeah. Um, how what was the reaction from readers uh, uh, in to that
0: i would say mostly positive i i have gotten a lot of emails and feedback on our website about people being very impatient for part 2 and <laughs> yeah. um it's it's funny to
1: i t- i'm the first one to be impatient <laughs> for part 3
0: well thank you um it it's it's been fun for me i mean you know usually you publish something and then it sort of goes out there into the ether and it's it's been interesting to write the second half and be getting comments on the first half and reactions from people I've written about in the first half who are also in the second half, which is a little complicated. Um, but uh, it it that all evolved sort of out of two reasons. One was I kept writing and writing and writing, and the story wasn't done. But also we thought it was too much to digest in one. Um, sitting. I mean, obviously people read it over more than one sitting, but publishing something that is 28,000 28, words in one issue, it just seemed like too much to ask of people, you know, who have jobs and families. So, so <laughs> I, I hope by breaking it up, it makes it more accessible. Um, the thing I am obsessed with right now and totally fascinated with is when to reveal information? So let me explain what I mean.
1: In the course of a narrative in the
0: course of a narrative. So in in the okay. Morton story, um, his three his son, who is three at the time, witnesses the murder, tells his grandmother what he saw and offers up all these very startling details that correspond to the crime scene. And the grandmother relays this information, to the investigating officer and he transcribes their conversations. There's this eight page transcript of basically describing what this three year old saw. And it's something that Michael and his lawyers didn't know about until last year. They Obviously things might have turned out differently if they had. Um, and so I mean, there there are many, many different components like this in this story and others. But so one of the things I thought about a lot was, okay, when do I reveal that? Do I reveal that when I'm describing the investigation? Because it happens very soon after Christine Morton is killed, that the officer gets this phone call from the grandmother. Or do I describe it during the trial when it's still in the prosecutor's file, but the defense attorneys don't have it? Or do I describe the moment when the appellate attorneys discover it several years ago? Or do I describe, I mean, there are all these different points in the story when that can be revealed. And to me, what I finally realized was, no, of course, the moment to reveal that is when Michael discovers it and when Michael learns not only that this information wasn't available to him that might have exonerated him, but that his child Saw his mother murdered. That the time to reveal that is through his perspective and his eyes, and those are the sorts of questions when I'm writing or when I'm, you know, putting off writing and having <laughs> panic attacks. Um, that really, um, I spend a lot of time thinking about is when do I tell that part of the story and how do I tell the reader that information?
1: Yeah. So what? So what are you going to? Uh what do you want to go cover after all these wrongful convictions?
0: I don't know. I'm really trying to figure that out. I'm um, I'm interested in trying. I mean, I can think m- more stylistically what I'm interested in doing than subject-wise. But in in this story, I, I tried something which I hadn't done much of before, which I hope to do more of, which is it's more true of the first half than the second half. But doing fewer quotes and just having like a, a more flowing narrative. Um, and that's something that Skip Hollinsworth, who I mentioned before, has really urged me to do, is to just tell the stories. Don't stop and have a quote and attribute something to someone else. Just take on those ideas and and write them. So,
1: It sounds like you and you and Hollinsworth are talking a lot about this topic.
0: <laughs> we, we have some great conversations. Um, usually one of us is very late-handing in a story and is questioning their career choice and um you know that sort of thing. <laughs> so but anyway, the, the that that when to reveal information is is the thing that's fascinating me right now.
1: Was there anything else I should ask you Pam?
0: I don't think so, but thank you for being interested in
1: all this. Well, it's uh, it's hard not to be interested. If you uh if you are listening and have not read part two, or even part one, how could you have not read part one? But if you have not read (laughs) this new story by Pam in Texas Monthly, um, check it out. It'll be in the show notes. It's on Texas Monthly's website. You should read it. Pam, thank you so much for uh, taking the time.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: You've been listening to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer. It's edited by Lauren Kirchner. If you want to read any of the stories that Pam and I were just talking about, they're all in the show notes at longform.org podcast. And we'll be back next week.
0: Times are hard. You're afraid to pay the
1: fee. So you find yourself somebody who can do the job.